Heavenly Father, for all of us, the, uh, the day is nearer than when we ourselves first believed, let alone when Paul was writing this. We ask that you would um, lift our minds and hearts this evening with the reminder of your son's return and the ways in which that is to impact the lives that we live right now, beginning uh, even this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come to these last chapters of the book of Romans, and do please open that uh, reading again at page 1140 if you've closed our, your church Bibles. As we come to those uh, last chapters, there can be a slight sense of Paul saying one thing and then moving quickly on, uh, uh, kind of catching up with the things he's left out so far. And I was quite puzzled as I prepared for this uh, evening's talk. And then I found, as can often happen, in the heart of the reading, a little word that spoke to me, that then opened up everything else. And it's the word in verse 13 of chapter 13. The word decently. What an incredibly dull word that is. And therefore probably important. Uh, who wants to come to church and just be decent? It uh, suggests the public face of our, of our Christian life. It smacks of politicians trying to look good or Christians terrified about what other people will think. But it's good to recognize that what other people think matters, and how and in what way that matters we'll find a little later on. I'm going to be making this claim that decency is hugely important. But to get there, we have to do some unpacking of the verses along the way. We begin tonight in verse 8. Paul finished last week, uh, verse 8. Seven, with the business of obligation to others, give everything what you give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes, revenue, then revenue, if respect, respect, if honor, then honor. But from obligation to others, in verse 7, Paul's now turning to the business of loving one another. But he's still playing with this uh, notion of uh, debt. He's going to be talking about the law. Now, that was one of some of the summaries of the law we had earlier on in our service when uh, Elizabeth guided us through the Ten Commandments. And when you hear the law, you can have a, a reasonable guess that Paul is probably talking within the audiences that he had in mind in the church in Rome. He's probably talking to the Jewish sector most of all. And he's saying to them, the, uh, you can pay uh, taxes and all the other things. The only debt... The only debt you will never fill up is the debt of love. You can pay the taxes, the revenue, the respect, the honor. And it is possible at £164 billion of debt, it is not very likely, but possible that you might actually be able to pay off all the debts. But with love, there will always be more to do. He says, love fulfills the law. Now, what would that mean? Well, he quotes some of those Ten Commandments here. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Love fulfills those laws, but because you can never pay the debt of love in full, 
You can't run around saying, well, I might not be too hot on those particular Ten Commandments, but I am generally a fairly loving person, so I must be okay. Paul says so. Can't do that. Because you can never pay the debt of love in full. Precisely for that reason, you can't use the verse as a way of saying that a feeling of love meets every hard-edged demand of the Jewish law. No, let's have a look at how it works. In verse... um, Verse 9, you have the details, the commandments, but that they're kind of, uh, the, the principle behind them is summarized in verse 10, love does no harm to its neighbor. So if you are doing no harm to your neighbor, you're not murdering him, or you're not committing adultery with him, you're not stealing, whatever it may be, if you're doing no harm to your neighbor, then you are both loving and fulfilling the law. We prayed at the uh, end uh, of the uh, uh, reciting of the Ten Commandments, give us the strength to keep your laws. Well, actually, of course, a lot of what Paul has been writing about from chapter 7 onwards is a recognition that you cannot keep the laws of God. Neither can I. But nonetheless, God says you have to keep them. Well, how are we going to keep them? It has to be something to do with love. And we'll find that out uh, as we go through. You cannot fully follow the law. You cannot fully pay the debt of love. There will always be more loving to do. That's how how he's he's dealing with the law and love in verses 8 through to 10. But then in verse 11, he seems to pick up a, a new theme from, well, uh, huge chunks of, uh, of Romans. We've got this sense of What you do now depends on what God has already done. Uh, Chapter 12, which kind of begins this section, says, I urge you, brothers, at the beginning of it, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Uh, I'm going to tell you what to do now, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Why? Because of God's mercy to you in your past. You are sinners. God in Jesus Christ has done everything necessary in the death of Jesus to be merciful to you in your sinfulness. He's met every demand of the law. He has done that. But now, in verse 11 of chapter 13, it's not so much what God has done, it's what still remains to be done. Perhaps this is prompted by this thought of debt and the sense that debt is something you you are looking forward to stopping, to to meeting. You're, You're looking forward to an end point to your debts. Well, whatever the reason is how he shifts from verse 10 to verse 11, there are three pictures that he now uses. And all the pictures depend on time. The hour has come to wake up. It's the first one. The second one, the day of salvation is near. It's bringing an end to the night. And then thirdly, therefore, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So let's just have a quick race through those. Firstly, wake up. I was kind of hoping at some point that that, that when I said that, someone would go, but I didn't actually see it happen. Um, But it is significant. The end chapters of Romans are about how to live in the world. 
And so many questions that we get asked are about that. How can I be a believer and still manage in this or that circumstance, in situations of work or or college? How about relationships? How about money? How about life and death? And they're normally good questions. And sometimes we feel those issues really sharply. We've just had one. How do we live in a world in which we have to vote? But often faced with those kind of circumstances and issues about how to live, we just sort of live with the questions. We muddle through somehow. Not quite merging with the rest of the world, but not quite distinctive from it either. And Paul says that's not good enough. No. Wake up. This matters. Be clear about your responsibilities as a citizen. He's talked about that already in the first verses of chapter 10. As a worker, that's in other parts of Romans. As a member of one culture or another, it's the whole Jew-Gentile thing that's been going on. As a servant of Christ, don't settle for a kind of wimpy marshland of uncertainty where you just kind of, well, it's it's a bit like this, a bit like that. I don't really know what's going on. Just because life's a bit difficult from time to time, Get it sorted, because lots of it can be sorted. Don't be reactive, waiting for everything to come to you, but wake up, set about your business, because there is a world to win, because the hour has come. The hour has come to wake up. So wake up, because the day of salvation is nearer. So if you're asleep tonight, then wake up. Don't settle for muddiness when the clarity of daylight is possible in the issues that confront us. Then this next picture, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He wrote that then, but of course, by definition for us, it's nearer again now than it was then. And he's not talking about personal salvation From time to time he would do that, but he's not talking about that now because of the the context he's speaking of. He's talking about the salvation that will come when uh, God's final salvation, when the gospel is preached to every nation, when the fullness of Jew and Gentile in the church of God is reached, when the day of Christ dawns at last. He has no idea when, any more than we do. But what we can say is that just as it was then, it's just around the corner. Because it gives pressure of a good and holy kind to the life that we live. It's nearer now than it was for Paul. It's nearer now for you and me than it was when we first believed. And then this third picture, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Sorry, let us put the therefore. Therefore, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, armor is what you need when you're under attack. Some of us are old enough to remember uh, an anti-drugs campaign in uh, the States, which was famous for its tagline, just say no. What Paul is saying here is that's not enough. In the issues of light and dark that confront us, 
you are not going to find there's enough help in just saying no. You need armoring. We need to build up layers of defense. We need to be delivered from any fantasy that we are up to this task alone, without a process of armoring ourselves. Those are just the timing issues then, those three. The hour has come, so wake up. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Those are the timing issues, and for all of those reasons, the pressure of time is on. Love, the theme of these verses, matters. And the reason I struggled when I came across these verses is this, why? Why does love matter? Because the pressure of time is on. Doesn't love just matter because it matters? Because it's love. Doesn't it carry its own set of demands with it? And that's where we come to this word in verse 13, decently. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Yes, it does mean what you think it means. It means the importance of being visibly respectable with an eye on the other person, the person watching to see how we behave. Now, that doesn't sound particularly uh, holy, so let me take you some other verses where I think we can uh, look at it. Uh, Turn to chapter 15 and verse 5. Love and, uh, uh, this is going to talk about unity, Uh, love and unity, the same kind of thing at this point. Um, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity, love matters because we need to be able to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of our praise... Love and unity matters. Or go back to chapter 12 and verse 17, the second part of it. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. It matters what people see. Now, I wonder if that sounds to you like uh, when he says, let's behave decently... Paul is praising a kind of Victorian hypocrisy. I don't think he is, but I do hope that none of us ever gives in to that nonsense by which we're often put on the back foot, that um, the message of the church cannot be true because Christians are hypocritical. No, we're not, mostly. Of course we're not hypocritical. We're just complete failures, and that's something completely different. We fail to do what we want to do. We proclaim what it is that we want to do. And often enough, we fail to do it. And that gap, it doesn't mean hypocrisy. So let's not have any of that when the world throws that charge at us. It is simply failure. But it is true that failure itself matters very much indeed. 
failures within the body of Christ, within the life of the church, are visibly scandalous, and they impact the credibility of the gospel. Let me just um, choose people on on two different sides. So Elizabeth's uh, over here and Jamie's over here. Now let's imagine that they are as different as it is possible for two people to be. There is no way these people should get on. Nonetheless, they've come to understand that because of what Jesus has done for them on the cross, it is possible for them to work together in love and unity. Now, they may have understood that, but what if something happens then? Well, while they are working together in love and unity, the people that they know are looking at them and saying, gosh, if two people that different can get on, there must be something in this stuff. But if they then fall out, the people around are going to be very quick to say, see, I told you it wouldn't last. There are consequences if we fail visibly in front of the rest of the world. Uh, We've heard from one uh, mission partner uh, tonight, Amanda Wade. Let me tell you about John and Ruth Chambers, or uh, let me read you something that they wrote in a prayer letter recently. You may know them. They work a great deal in Indonesia. And one of the concerns that they've got is the, 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 the deadness of the churches with which they often have to deal. Mostly they're dealing with uh, student groups or, or graduate student groups for those who may still have a life uh, 20 years on from being students because the life in the student group is still more lively than in the churches. Why are things in the churches so grim? Some of the specific issues which are being faced in the different ethnic groups are ancestor worship, domestic violence, open immorality, drunkenness, hatred of other groups, caste systems, slavery, and corruption in church leadership. It is not surprising under these circumstances that the gospel makes little impact on outsiders And many young people from within the groups are turned off from church. When we get it wrong in the church, visibly, then the world notices. When we get it right, the world notices and is turned towards the praise of God. Now that takes us really through the kind of the more uh, Jewishy bits of those verses that we had tonight. But Paul's always even-handed in Romans, and now he's going to turn so much, uh, now he's going to turn not so much dealing with uh, Jews and the law, but with the Gentiles and the issues of indulgence as he spells out what it means to live decently because other people notice. What are the issues that make us look really, really bad? And you've all thought this, haven't you? You've thought, I must stop those orgies. Well, let's uh, look there again. There are are three kind of little parts to this. One is orgies and drunkenness. And I'd say the emphasis on that is not so much uh, Roman orgies with with all that our minds might supply at that point, but just kind of wild drunken behavior. Drink is at the heart of the words in the Greek that that are in that uh, collection. Now, of course, uh, uh, there are very few pregnancies that start... Uh, for women under 18 that haven't got drink involved somewhere along the line. So there is a very strong connection. 
uh, and I point to those, there's probably quite a few after that age too. But uh, uh, orgies and drunkenness, the emphasis is on dr- the drink because the next section is the one that focuses on sex, sexual immorality and debauchery. And that's any kind of sexual indulgence with others. And then thirdly, dissension and jealousy. Fractured social relationships. Now what strikes me about these is that all of them involve peer pressure. I don't know if you saw a report during the week that to the surprise of scientists conducting a research for the Ministry of Defense, those returning from active duty in Iraq and Afghanistan suffered less than was expected from post-traumatic stress disorder. However, they suffered much more than was expected from alcoholism. And what interested me was one of the comments made by one of the uh, medical guys in the army teams. He said, we know that alcohol has a very important part to play within the army in terms of bonding. And it was that that interested me most of all. It's not surprising that uh, people become alcoholics uh, uh, faced with the pressures of active service of that kind. But there was acknowledgement at the very heart of the, the medical system in the army that actually these guys need alcohol in order to have a relationship with one another. Does drink have to be like that? But there's a peer pressure. Imagine being the one, the squaddy, who says, actually, I won't, thanks, I'll have an orange juice. I wonder how long you'd last. Secondly, uh, sexual immorality and debauchery. I think of a a story that someone uh, told me not very long ago uh, of guys, I imagine in the pub, uh, uh, after a couple of pints, getting out their mobile phones and showing each other whether they could outgross each other with the pornography that was available on their mobile phones. Peer pressure. What about dissension and jealousy? The stories that one hears. Uh, I think of a, a mission partner of our church who adopted uh, a, a daughter in Brazil, brought her back to this country. That girl was pushed out of a window uh, by uh, backbiting, by gossip, by uh, a gang of girls who just decided that she didn't fit. Peer pressure. They all involve peer pressure. And that, therefore, is why I think Paul tells us something about armor. He knows that we will not resist by just saying no. We need more than that. He finishes by saying, do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature, verse 14. You could also translate it as actively think about how not to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Don't drift, or it just, or, or ju- don't drift, don't just hope that somehow you have the strength inside you to resist when it comes to the drink and the sex and the gossip and the backbiting. Don't think that you're, you've got all that it takes. 
Think. Think. Take measures. Get into business. Well, later on in these chapters, there's going to be more on the theme of relationships. But Paul is working really hard now from the past, from the future, from the law, from the state, all to reinforce this message. Love your neighbor. It's not remotely sentimental. Uh, That would be simply individual. And Paul has much bigger fish to fry. Because of this, what Paul wants And we're going to find it when we get his little travelogue a little later. He wants the gospel that has begun in Jerusalem and then moved out to the imperial center in Rome to keep moving out. He wants the gospel to carry on expanding. And it's going to come to a grinding halt. If the Jews can't get past the law, the Gentiles can't get past their drinking and and they're not getting on with each other. He wants to take their heads in this church and knock them together because he longs for the power of the gospel, which he describes as Jesus not pleasing himself, but doing good for us, us not pleasing ourselves, but doing good for our neighbor. He wants the power of the gospel to work out and to draw people to himself, as the world is astonished by these people who should not get on, getting on. There's a danger in ending a sermon with an illustration because we may remember only the illustration and not the point. I'll take that risk. Yesterday, I went to watch the final of the Bishop Morris Wood Cup in the Christian League. There were two teams, one from the Heartsease Churches and one from the UEACU. And towards the end of the match, there was a fight on the pitch between the teams, quite a serious one. I don't know the full story. I suspect one person did something rather foolish and that led to another thing and then to another all in a moment. Happily, there were also also those on both sides wanting to stop it getting worse. Now, I was watching not far from a very, very large man who clearly spent quite a long time at Wroxham Football Club at the bar. He wasn't a supporter of either team. But within 10 seconds after the incident, I heard him shouting, And this is the Christian League. That's the reality. The world is actively looking for the times when we get it wrong, when we fail. It's relentlessly probing the chinks in our armour. If you think your armour can stand up to the attack, well, good on you. Those who are on the pitch needed the good guys on the teams to intervene and protect and stand between and do what was really the job of loving their neighbor. Though, of course, they'd actually have got hit even harder if anyone had said that. I cannot do the job of love alone, and neither can most of us. Do please find those who will build up your armor and be ruthless in practicing love decently, in that sense of, not hypocritically, but bearing in mind that the world is always watching. Be ruthless in cutting out the deeds of darkness, whatever you have to do. Put on the armor of light, whatever you have to do. Don't think it happens by nature. Don't think that it happens because you've become a Christian and everything's hunky-dory now. It doesn't. 
Don't think it happens by relaxing and resting. It doesn't. It happens by unremitting warfare. The world is not on our side, but is watching for every slip. God knows the power of a community of love, living decently. The power in such a community to change the world around. And so, of course, the world knows that too and is watching for every slip. Give them no opportunity. Wake up from your own slumbers and behave decently. The battle to love involves enormous peer pressure to get it wrong. And only positive peer pressure from the body whose members belong to one another will help most of us get it right and withstand that attack. And then we will find ourselves looking forward to that day of Christ without shame and playing our role so that salvation is indeed that bit nearer for the world. Can we pray together? Mighty God, you more than any know the chinks in our armour. How grateful we are that in many cases it's only you that knows the chinks in our armour. Please close those chinks. Armour us with light that we may know what it is to love our neighbour, to love the man and woman uh, around us, our brother and sister within your people, so that the world will simply be gobsmacked at the kind of people that we are. You know our failures. We know our failures. God, come into our lives by your Holy Spirit, Move us beyond the failures to the love of neighbour. Give us a, a holy ruthlessness with ourselves. Give us friends, counsellors, the wise brothers and sisters around us that we may know you not only in the dreams and visions important as those are, but in the day-by-day -day warfare that matters in the church of God to love one another that the world may be different.